Good morning, and welcome to Come and Reason Sabbath School. My name is Linda Ojala, and I'm covering for Tim Jennings today, who is away. And today we're going to be looking at lesson number nine in our quarterly. This is titled, Jeremiah's Yoke. And when I saw this title, I mean, if you saw this title, would you think that this is a fun subject to talk about? But I found it exciting, and I'll tell you why. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Father... We are so grateful for the life you give us through your Holy Spirit, a balanced life, a pure life, a life that's being prepared for eternity. We pray that you fill this room and all the rooms of our listeners with your Holy Spirit. Guide our thoughts. Help us to understand you and know you better today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the reasons I like this subject is this This subject touches on something that I really enjoy, and that's communication. When you think of Jeremiah's yoke, and I think we need to maybe go over the story a little bit to see what Jeremiah's yoke is about, we'll do that first, but it is a communication form from God. God is fascinating in the various forms of communication he uses, and I'm interested to think and to see why God communicates one way in one instance, another way in another instance. Why he chooses a certain form of communication is fascinating to me. Let's go over what Jeremiah's yoke is about. And so to do that, we'll sort of skip to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, kind of hit the highlights on those those days this week. And then we'll go into more detail about God's communication using not only this yoke, but other instances in the Bible we can uh, think about. So what is the story of Jeremiah's yoke? Uh, The Israelites were under Babylonian captivity, and naturally they wanted to be out of Babylonian captivity. And yet God told Jeremiah to let the Israelites know they should not rebel against Babylon. They should remain in in, uh, under the bondage of uh, yokedom, if you will, of Babylon until the prescribed time when the Lord said they should be there. However, there was another prophet. Hananiah, and he was giving a message from the Lord that really was not a message from the Lord. And he, he in turn used the yoke his own way to try to tell what he wanted people to think God was saying. So on Monday, we learn in the Monday's lesson, we learned that uh, Jeremiah had to experience physically what the Babylonian invasion meant. God told him to actually build a yoke and wear it. And that's kind of awkward. We think uncomfortable and awkward. I uh, don't know how really how long he had to wear this yoke. But in any event, here he was going around talking to people wearing a yoke. The idea that God was trying to get across was, yes, you're in bondage. Yes, it's humiliating. But if you rebel against Babylon, your bondage will be worse than it is now. Never let it be said that God doesn't warn us what will happen when we take a wrong course. 
So we have to ask ourselves, and because I think all these lessons in the Bible was written for our instruction, our encouragement, do we consistently try to make the right choices, the choice God guides us, so that we don't suffer the consequences? Here comes Jeremiah. He's wearing this yoke. I'm not sure what, how they fixed it in those times, but there are various forms of yokes. And depending on where you're standing, a yoke might be uh, bondage, humiliation, uh, being ruled by something or someone else. It also might be a yoke of oxen that we're used to seeing more in the farm pictures about having a two oxen strapped together. In both cases, you're the being, the, the animal or the person that's in a yoke is not free to do their own thing. In one case, you're a slave, essentially. In another case, you're a mentee. And I want to look at, we're going to be looking here in the Bible a bit uh, ahead about what the difference is in a yoke of bondage versus a yoke as a mentee. Because Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Today, we need to look at these lessons as they apply to, to us. So one of the things I noticed about the lesson starting in Monday was that God was warning them. And why do you think he might use the communication form of wearing a yoke? Catch their attention. Catch their attention. Would it pos- is it possible that they might have been worn some other way and not really paying attention to that? Wendell? You see pictures on various reliefs of ancient times of pe- people who have been captured. And they are wearing chains with a wooden yoke around their, their necks with a chain from yoke to yoke. And these prisoners are all being carried back to wherever they're being hauled off to as prisoners. And so... You know, in my, this is a synonymous, I think, to the picture of handcuffs. You'll see a picture of a, a caricature of handcuffs, and that is used as a designation of something that is a, a arrest or whatever. And so a wooden yoke of captivity would be essentially synonymous with capture and subjugation. Mm-hmm. You're not free. And the trouble was that Hananiah and the people all wanted to be free. So here you have a prophet telling the people exactly what he wanted the people to know. And then you have Hananiah, another prophet. Who's the person to believe who hears these, both these prophets? Does anyone remember what Hananiah did with Jeremiah's yoke? He broke it. He broke it. And he said, this is what the Lord is going to do. I'm telling you that he's going to break the yoke off of you. We're going to be free from Babylon. Uh, and he was so convincing, apparently, that he made the people trust, the Bible says, in a lie. So that touches on today on when we hear people saying one thing versus another thing. Who are we to believe? The Bible says the prophet whose prophecy comes true, that's the true prophet. It's easy in hindsight to look back and see the things that have gone, you know, right. But how do you determine now? How would they know the difference between what Jeremiah said and what Hananiah said? Jeremiah says, stay put. 
stay a captive. We have a length of time. Jeremiah used history. He went back and he, he uh, quoted uh, Hosea. He said, Hosea, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, others, they all made this prediction. Look back and see. This is nothing new. I'm trying to get you to stay the course. Don't jump the gun. You know, do what the Lord says. But Hananiah was so convincing that he made the people trust in a lie. So, because Hananiah sort of misused the very tool that God was giving to instruct the people, do you remember what happened with Hananiah? Jeremiah was given another another word. He said, if you go ahead with this, if you believe it, then you, not only will you have a yoke of wood, you'll have a yoke of iron. Things can get worse, and they will get worse if you follow Hananiah's instruction, you know, um, word. So, but Hananiah was still so convincing, so convincing, that finally uh, God sent another message to Jeremiah saying, all right, since you've caused people to believe a lie, your life will end this very year. We've talked in the past about God removing players from the scene. And here was Hananiah trying to take the very word God was giving him and twist it and misuse it and try to misdirect the people to do the wrong thing. And so here's an instance, and within that year, Hananiah did die. So that's the kind of basis of the um, lesson we're talking about today. It's not only important to understand that, yes, Hananiah may have been a convincing uh, orator, he may have been a you know, smooth talker, whatever, but he was speaking to an audience that, that wanted to hear what he had to say. Yep. And you know, the, the, the people of Judah and, and Benjamin were already in captivity because they had continuously believed a lie rejected truth so that, you know, lie was about all that was left for them to believe, then they're given, they're spoon-fed a lie and they eat it like honey. Yeah. While, um, uh, you know, Jeremiah is telling them the truth and they they don't want to hear it. They don't want to be bothered by it. You know, it's it's like modern-day politics. More <laughs> politics since the inception of politics. <laughs> You hear what you want to hear? Uh, yes. Believe what you want to believe? Since, you know, <laughs> Lucifer in heaven. <laughs> That's a good, a good point, Russell. Uh, it is true that they, they wanted to believe it with all their heart. They wanted to be free. And it is also the case that I can think of myself. Several ways in which very popular churches of today, very respected leaders, purvey a lie. In God's name. And I wanted to ask if any of you can think right off the top of your head what types of lies might being might be being pervaded today among what we might consider false prophets or or uh, clergy or whoever uh, is trying to speak for God. The immortality of the soul seems to be a central thing that is... Everyone wants to believe. Another thing might be um, the idea that 
you can be so emotionally moved by, say, accepting Jesus that you will then emotionally believe that the same preacher can say that you are totally clear of all your sins and that healing is not important to you because God has declared you righteous. Even though you're not. Even though you're absolutely not. And so you float along in this boat of security which in which is sinking and you don't realize it. Good point. Anything else? There's the prosperity gospel of, you know, everything good's going to happen to you and that you're following Christ. And that's not what he said. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. So what makes you wonder about the prosperity gospel is but Jesus out of his own lips says it's very hard for the rich to be saved. So why, on the other hand, would he want everybody to be rich? It would make it even harder for you to be saved. You know, but yet that's a very prevalent gospel. And the pick and choose thing through the Bible and, and bring it. Yes, God wants you to be well off. Yes. But you remember back when uh, the rich young ruler came to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Basically, he said, follow the commandments. Which commandments? The Ten Commandments. He listed several of them off. What else do I need to do? I've, I've done all these since I was a child. Sell everything and follow me. Give it to the poor and follow me. Well, he kind of hit the nail on, on, that, uh, on the head of where the, this individual, the rich young ruler, we call him, had uh, missed the mark of the commandments. He didn't love people so much to give to them. He was trying to keep them. Yeah. All Protestant churches have pretty much... Uh, disassociated themselves with the idea of who the Antichrist is. And I could see that infiltrating our church when it comes to the time we're buying, buying and selling and not being able to. We could find ourselves in the same position because we want to buy and sell. It's easy to buy and sell. And it's easy to slip into that mindset of what the other Protestant churches say because why would you want to put yourself in an awkward position like that? Mm-hmm. Yep, and that's another instance. Um, I see a lot of people that I know that uh, go to church on, on Sunday, for example, and church is what they do. And then after that, they do anything. They shop, they watch sports. It's not, you know, it's doing whatever interests them. And there's no churches all that happens on their Sabbath day. And uh, the Bible is replete with don't use the Sabbath as a uh, your own day to do your own thing. It's a holy day to reconnect with God like we're trying to do today. Um. Linda, I think top of the list of false gospels is God is angry. And frankly, that's central to everything that's already been mentioned here. God's pissed, and if he doesn't get the blood payment of his righteous son applied to his anger, then our immortal soul will fry in hell forever. Yeah. That's very prevalent. And so you have this, this feeling that you're worshiping a God that if you decided against him would cause you to be alive unnaturally in order to be tortured eternally. I mean, we're sinners. How many of us think that's fair? Don't love me. I will persecute you. I will make sure you're, bur- you're just tortured for eternity. I mean, never ending. And yet that's what is given as truth to people it's no wonder so many people just say i'm i don't want anything to do with this this is a god that's not even uh good in any respect 
I'm totally giving up on this God. They were probably smarter to give up on that God. Of course, we ha- I've had some other things. Um, I-, I think you kind of touched on that, Ken, when you said um, they say one thing that's, that's good from the pulpit, and then they, it- and it's kind of a trust relationship. Like, you don't really need to study your Bibles necessarily for yourself. I'll study. I'll give you the truth. You accept what I say. And they encourage you to just come to church, give your offerings, um, and there's not a lot of intense Bible study among people. I've got to say that I was retired for six months, and now I'm kind of working part-time again. And during that six months, I found uh, that I was attracted to the Bible. I mean, I would it became like reading a novel to me in a way. I just couldn't quit. I was like, it was so fascinating. I began to realize, um, and look at the Bible more like a jigsaw puzzle, if you will, that since we believe God inspired the entire thing, then I believe God put puzzle pieces all through it and encourages you to look for those pieces. You can take any one verse or one act in this case with Jeremiah's yoke. You can take one thing and twist it. You can come up with a whole doctrine based on one verse. But I don't think that's the way God wants us to study. I really think God wants us to to uh, search for the puzzle pieces. Look at the various texts that um, pertain to a, per- a certain subject, no matter what it is. I have this um, this app on my phone. It's called the Bible Gateway. It has every kind of translation, practically, that you can some, and also some paraphrases. And you can pick one what you want. Put in a search. I want to look for the word. Yoke, for example, in this instance. I want to see everything the Bible says about yoke. Uh, and just look at them all. Jot them down or look at them all. And you'll find when you do that kind of Bible study that you'll, um, you'll see a piece here. And then, that makes, and then you'll see a piece here. And look how that fits together. And then look how that fits together. And if you find them all and start to put them together, then and only then is when you get a more complete picture of what God's trying to say to you. So, so I had so much fun actually uh, going through and connecting things. One thing in the Bible would remind me of something else, and I began to see the connections. I would really encourage more Bible study. The, the, the Bible is active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. I think in medical terms, it's like a scalpel. Gets in there and cuts out the bad stuff and gives you the good stuff. I, I make a habit sort of of reading through the Bible. I don't do any kind of plan. I just read through. And when I'm done, I read through again and again. And yet every single time, every time I read verses, I could swear I have never read before. And I know I have, but it just jumps out at me in a new way. I don't know if it's God actually using the words to jump out at me or because I'm in a different place than I was the last time I came to this verse and now it's speaking to me. But I want to, now we've, we've sort of looked at the gist of this story. The, and I want to get to the exciting part. I don't want to miss out on that. I want to talk about a, a, and examine God's communication forms with us. This yoke being one of them, a visual uh, display that helps us understand or actually makes a greater impact, hopefully, than just mere words have, have done. But I want to kind of go over 
a few of the kinds of things that I thought of this week in the way God talks to us. So many times I talk to people and they say, I don't, I don't know how, what God's saying. I don't know how to, how he's directing me in this case. I wish he'd just, like, come up and talk to me or something. So many choices and I don't know which one to make. but you'll find in the Bible and in your life, God will find all kind of creative ways to talk to you if you just listen uh, and use other things. Just like in the Bible, he'll do that in your life. And I, I probably shouldn't ask for a show of hands, but have maybe have any of you felt like you actually heard God or a representative of God saying something to you? There was a few of you, yeah. And, um, you know, the Bible says, you know, if, while you're in the way, if, if you go to the right or left, you'll hear a voice saying, this is the way, walk ye in it, and so on. So it leads me to think if you're actually going in the right way, you may not hear any voices at all. <laughs> yes, Joel. I think a lot of time God speaks in ways that it's not an audible voice, that it's in our minds and we know it's not us. And we know it's clearly God. And I think that he's waiting to do that with everyone. It's just we often don't take time to listen. And I find that God does this particularly at times when if you didn't have his viewpoint, you would be in despair. Uh, Just very few times in my life have I had a different thought come to my mind than I was even thinking. There was one instance when... Very bad things were happening, too much to go into. But in the midst of the bad things, when I'm saying, oh, no, bad things, a a thought came in my mind, praise God mightily for something wonderful will come from this. And I'm like, okay. I don't use the word praise God mightily. I certainly wasn't thinking in that direction at all. But I'm here to say that because of that, thought creeping into my mind unexpectedly and kind of pulling my chain. I'm like, it caused me to look at that scenario differently. I thought, well, if God says I should praise him mightily for this, what about this bad situation can I be happy about? What can I look for? And it caused me to look for the the good. It caused me to see God's perspective on things rather than my own because I would have been in despair totally. And I, I'm here to say that I, as time has gone on and I continue to look for the good that uh, God, I think, told me to look for, that I should be praising him because something wonderful will come from this, I see wonderful things coming from what was um, a terrible incident in the past. And I don't, several of you seem to indicate with head nods and little hands that they may have had, you may have had those kind of experiences. And I just, I just treasure a God that, But I say, you know, he gives you, he helps you with the big things of life. He helps you with the little things of life. The flowers, I call them. Uh, He wouldn't have to do that. He wouldn't have to uh, do something big. You'd probably believe in him anyway. It's not going to be a salvation issue. But he just wants to make you happy. He wants to make you happy. It's, It's interesting for me to think of a God that cares so much that he would do little things. To brighten your day. Little things to help you resolve niggling issues in your mind and so on. I want to look at some forms of communication in the Bible that God has used other than physical signs like 
like the yoke. We've had, we have different, uh, poor Hosea, <laughs> these different prophets. Who among you would want to be a prophet? No hands? Have you looked at the life of prophets? You know, they're being killed, they're being thrown into wells, they're being scourged, they're being put in, even God, you know, wear this. One prophet told to lay on his side for, left side for a year, lay on the other side for, you know, for the next year. It's like, marry a prostitute, don't, in Jeremiah's case, he wasn't supposed to get married, have kids, go to a house of mourning, go to any festivals. Here is, here is a prophet All these prophets are asked to go outside their comfort zones. What would be outside our comfort zone if we were asked to do something like that? To make a statement. God thought so strongly, you have to listen to me. He was willing to put his prophets through these and many, many more things that they've had to go through to just to try to get our attention. But he doesn't just use those kind of things. He uses other kinds of communication, not only with in the Bible, but with us. So I want to just take this opportunity to look at the way God's communicating back then and today and see if we can't, you know, hone in our understanding of why God may may use a communication form for you in certain circumstances. And the first thing that comes to mind is loudness. Can anyone think of an instance where God uh, kind of yelled and scared everybody? Clearing the temple. Clearing the temple. I don't know if he yelled, but that was Mount Sinai. Yeah. Paul to Damascus. Yes. You mean Saul? <laughs> Saul going along and all of a sudden he gets sort of blasted and can't see for days. Or when God didn't use noise of Elijah and the mountain. Yeah, the the thunder, the lightning, the wind, the still small voice. Yep. And another instance in Jesus' life of the opposite, quiet woman brought to him in adultery, caught in adultery. I always thought, where was the man? (laughs) But the woman, only the woman was brought to Jesus to make a determination. Uh, If they were caught, surely there was a man there too. But somehow or another, they only thought the woman was involved in this. And But what did Jesus do? Did he talk to them and orate and try to convince or argue? He just bent over and started writing in the sand. And then when they kept after him, he said, well, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. Then he bent down and wrote some more. The use of effective use of quietness. <laughs> and privacy. And respect. Mm-hmm. And privacy, she was saying. Yeah. And in Revelation 1, he had a voice like a trumpet. He turned behind him, so it was pretty loud, I guess. Yeah, and in fact, in Exodus 19, uh, in that uh, Sinai, 1919, it did mention the loud trumpet was being, a sound was one of the things that accompanied him, and it got louder and louder and louder. It scared the people. They're like, ah, you talk to him. (laughs) We don't want to hear this. Yeah. And then when he calls everybody from the dead, it's going to be the voice of an archangel, like a trumpet. Yeah. He can be very, very loud. Same guy can be very, very quiet and get you with writing in the sand. Don't you think that God speaks to all of us in different ways? Because we learn in different ways, whether we're visual, auditory, kinetic. Whoever's teacher's among you. 
uh, and I've done some teaching myself, realize that people do not learn in the same way. Sometimes you'll see someone doodling in the classroom and think, oh, they're not paying attention. But in fact, they're the kind of learner who learns better if they are doing something with their hands while they're learning. Other people learn better with music. Some people learn better with quiet. Like you say, visual, hands-on is one of the really popular way. God used hands-on, in fact, as a learning tool. In which, which instances can you think of that God used hands-on? The what? Tabernacle. Oh, the tabernacle. Yeah, so they, they actually had to build the tabernacle, then they did their hands-on. They themselves had to kill the lamb and then give it to the priest to do his thing. They got to watch this whole process of festivals through the year and the process of doing the sanctuary was meant to be a a hands-on and symbolic tool of what it means to go from outside and totally away from God to being one with him in the most holy place. It's kind of a workflow, if you will, (laughs) how you get there. Um, But hands-on also, let's see, I was thinking there was a hands-on and I really liked uh, oh, I know. It was where the uh, Jesus sent out his disciples to do the actual work. It's one thing to observe work. It's a whole other thing to do it yourself. And so he sent out the 12 telling them, don't take anything with you. Don't take purse. Don't take extra shirt or shoes or anything. You are worth, when you're working, doing God's work, you're worth being taken care of by others as you do your work. And so they did, they were supposed to cast out demons and raise the dead and, and all the kind of things you see Jesus doing. He gave them the authority to do and then said, okay, try it out. Then come back and debrief. Yeah. Great point. I'll bet you're better prepared for this lesson than you were last week. Yes. When you have to prepare for next week's lesson than I am this week. <laughs> when you have to teach, it really just a hands-on thing, you, you know. Do the work. Mm-hmm. It it uh, puts it in firmer concrete. It does, and makes you really think. Besides just the lesson, I don't know. It's maybe it's just me. I'm not big. I'm not really wild about a kind of lesson where okay, the question is this. The text you read. The question is this. The text you read. I like to get the idea of the lesson. What is God trying to say to us? Everything is wonderful. You know, the, the saying is, we have nothing to fear. If, uh, if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. Uh, that kind of thing. We, we must learn from history. We must learn from history. There can't be a bunch of stories. It has to be what it means. What is God saying to us? Uh, I, let, me, let me ask you about another communication form, I thought. Consequences. As a learning tool. Can you think of Bible examples of consequences? Adam and Eve. <laughs> Adam and Eve. The big, the big one. <laughs> for which we all suffer the consequences from. David. David. David with Absalom and his uh, sons. Yeah. David with Absalom and his sons. I'm going to reiterate for the people in the back. Uh, when, and when you're answering, if you can, you know, speak out loudly enough so all can hear, that would be great. But other, uh, yes, Absalom, the one that came to my mind was Uzzah. Anyone remember the story of Uzzah? Philistines had taken the ark, and then it was bringing them nothing but trouble. Rats and tumors and so on. Finally, they got so fed up with it, they wanted to send it back. So they sent it back on a cart 
with uh, cows who had just who had given birth, and they kept the, they kept the calves away from the mothers. And they said, normally a calf would never, I mean, a cow would not leave her babies. But they kept the calves thinking, if these cows go back to Israel, then it's God. Because that's unnatural for a cow to leave its, its babies. And off they went back to Israel. But when it got to Israel, uh, they, were car- they were going along with the ark. And as, as the oxen stumbled... You know, my impression, it's like me with a, with a, you know, having to break fast. I'm always like, child, purse, <laughs> you know, you're always like, eh. And for me, I imagine the cart going along and the oxen stumbling and us are going, oh, you know, to try to keep it from falling. But instead of that, he dropped dead. I've kind of thought God was maybe a little unfair in that, you know, uh, but it might not have been an incidental thing. He might have had other motives, I don't know. But did it make an impression? Was that a consequence? Uzzah was a priest. He knew what he was supposed to be doing. He'd, he'd grown up with, with schooling from an infant to know what he was supposed to be doing. The Philistines put them in a, uh, the best thing they did. Uzzah knew better. And God is always through the Bible trying to dis- help us to distinguish the difference between holy and unholy. A holy day rest of the week. You know, in the case of the sanctuary, holy articles, rest of the articles. And in this case, God was, I think, trying to reestablish there is a difference between your average chest and this one. And this one is holy. And you need to remember that. Even, even if uh, Uzzah was, uh, yeah, had known better, but his, his intent was instinctive and he was... His motivation was pure. Who, who cares if he's put to sleep now? If God resurrects him and saves him, then you know it's win-win. The lesson was learned for, for the darkened minds of, of Israel, and Uzzah, Uzzah just went to sleep for a few thousand years. He played his part. Yeah. And now that lesson... It's, it's, not, it's not for us to judge his motivation, because we don't know. Mm-hmm. And it had the it had an effect, right. <laughs> and it had such an effect that David was then afraid to bring it to the to Jerusalem. Be like, okay, if he's doing this to us, I don't know if I even want to bring it to Jerusalem, the ark to Jerusalem, because I I don't I'm afraid now. This this incident caused David to be afraid, angry, and afraid of God. So what he do? He put the he put the ark in somebody's house. <laughs> And three months later, a report came to him that said that whole family is being blessed because the ark is in their house. Everything they have, whatever they are, is being blessed because the ark is there. So then David finally got over his fear and anger and went and retrieved the ark and brought it back to Jerusalem with with uh, joy. And then I guess finally realizing that God didn't mean evil for people. He, he meant good, and he finally got back into trust with God and brought it back to Jerusalem. Well, it caused him to do some research in the way that a mark should have been carried in the first place. And, you know, and Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, David started to realize, hey, you know, we, we approached this all all wrong. Okay, we need to have the Levites put you know the staves in the rings and have them carried on the shoulders, and there needs to be 
there's there's a certain um, protocol uh, protocol pomp and circumstance and and uh, a gravity to this whole situation. You know, I, and again, fair Lord, the beginning of wisdom and a communication form. Mm-hmm. Yes, I saw an arm. This question actually uh, bothered me, and I, I, after Sabbath school one day, I'd asked him about it, and uh, it was an interesting insight. He said, whenever as it gets to heaven, imagine that if uh, God were to say, I need somebody to volunteer because David's heading off the wrong path, and we need to have him pause. He's not listening. He's, he's blinded right now. Can I get a volunteer for somebody to just get him to stop? With Uzzah having what seemed to be a very pure heart, you can imagine him raising his hand saying, I'll be it. So that even though... Yeah, but it doesn't sound like he had a choice in the action. It was, it was a Pavlovian response on his standpoint. Exactly, was... for an incident that happened. But to be able to give David pause, to be able to have him have the reflection, to be able to stop a course that was uh, potentially even more damaging... Um, that it was a, a matter of being able to use a bad situation to have a good outcome. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Another communication form I thought of was advertising. How many of us are affected by advertising? They say we're the most we're the most advertised to generation and country ever in any. In any currently or in the past, we have been uh, we have been advertised to all the time, and and the effect of too much advertisement ends up it ends up being kind of white noise. So they end up trying to find more greater ways to get our attention. But God, in fact, used advertising. Peggy, who's this is about Uzzah. Hmm? Uh, Autumn said Uzzah's incident was during David's first attempt to move the ark to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. He did it right the second time, having the priests carry it. That's right. And sacrificing on the way, every few steps they would sacrifice some more. He gained a whole new appreciation for the holiness of God. And that was the, I think the communication was meant to say, I am not like everybody else. I need you to understand me. So let's, let's think about what form, what, when can you think of in the Bible that God used advertising as a method of communication. When Christ was born, the angels sang to the shepherds. That's right. Advertising is born. When Christ was born, the angels sang to the shepherds. Triumphal entry. Yes, the triumphal entry. Uh, people were about to crown him king. You know, they, uh, they were all caught up in who he was. Uh, Let's see, I think your hands your hand was first, yeah? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord, you know, he's coming. Um Nebuchadnezzar's dream was so uh, such a good um way of advertising that he had to try to counter the advertisement with a special party on the plain of Dora and that again reversed itself when the Hebrew boys were thrown in the fire. Mhm. Well, I mean, he didn't want to be just the head of gold. He wanted to be the entire body of gold. I'm going to remake my dream, and I'm going to be the whole thing, and no one's taking, I'm going to live forever, and no one's going to take this away from me. <laughs> uh, Russell. Well, we can argue that all the Old Testament prophets are public service advertisements. This is, we're warnings. This is what's going to happen if we continue along this course. It's, 
the whole system of Old Testament prophets that are advertising. Mm -hmm. The flood was an advertisement. As far as that goes, do you think you could consider the plagues that befell Egypt an advertisement? Yes. Well, one, you know, the interesting thing about the, the plagues is we usually think of it as uh, a way to get Pharaoh to let them go. Okay, I'm making it every time, I'm making it worse and worse and worse. I'm thinking you ought to change your mind before I get to plague number 10. Because you see, even the, even his advisors, Pharaoh's advisors said, you know, don't you realize Egypt is in total ruin here? You know, let them go. Let them go. But, uh, the, the plagues also, we're told, uh, from Ellen White was to make the Israelites want to leave Egypt. That really surprised me. I had no idea that there was a, like a other, motives for that communication you, you're in a bad relationship you're in a bad home you're in a bad life what what makes you stay there you know um, you are willing to put up with something bad because that's maybe better than the unknown which to you is even worse than the bad known well egyptians weren't any different they were slaves they that bad situation they were in but the desert and what was out there was unknown, and they feared that even more. So what would make you want to get out of Dodge more than seeing the whole place being destroyed around you and figuring, well, this God, I, he's on my side, I'm going with him. It was an interesting, you know, kind of side effect of the communication to the e Egyptians. It wasn't only to the Egyptians, it was also to the Israelites. Ralph Russell. Uh, Christ's life, death, and resurrection are an advertisement. They're an advertisement about what the Father is. What he's truly like. That's right. I mean, it's, it's one great advertisement. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is who, this is who I am. He is. Truth in advertising. That's right. Well, the, the one that came to my mind was the very first time we have recorded in the Bible where Jesus said, I am the Messiah. It was to a woman. It was to a Samaritan, not even an Israelite. And so, basically, he said, you know, I, she said, well, we know the Messiah is coming. Well, I'm he. It plain out. You know, he didn't put that in parables or anything. He just said, advertisement, the one you're looking for, me. And she believed him and go, went and told everybody. Because in the small town, everybody knew her. Because <laughs> she had been married five times and was living with somebody else. So she was pretty... Um, pretty well known in the community and she went back and told everybody you know here's somebody who told me everything i've ever done well they knew everything she'd ever done too but here's a stranger coming through knowing everything she'd ever done so to this to me jumped out as a as he was finally just saying i'm the messiah i can give you living water and so on um Another form of learning tool, communication form, is example. Show you an example. Uh, Tim uses the thing, well, if you're jumping, if you see somebody jump off of a building, gravity's going to take hold, and the example is, you jump off, you die. You sin, you die. Unless somebody else holds you, in place and keeps you from getting your final destination, passes over your sins, so to speak, and allows you a chance to see someone else receiving the results of sin, which would be Jesus, 
now you have an opportunity to change your mind and get back in, <laughs> get back in through the window and go a different direction. Can anyone think of a, another example, an example from the Bible? Job. Of example. Yeah. Job, he was faithful despite what he went through, and then God blessed him more than he was before. It, it, it intrigues me that he got double of all the animals, and he got the exact number of children in the exact proportion to what he had before. wonder if it was the same wife. <laughs> doesn't say anything about that. And then Jonah would be another example. Jonah. Jonah would be another example. What happens when you decide to disregard God's direction? Will he find another way? I, have you, how many of you have found out that God is the most creative problem solver in the whole universe? How many of you would think that in order to be prime minister of another country, your, your trajectory should be uh, prison, should be sold into slavery, lied about, sent to prison, and then become prime minister of another country? Is that any kind of career path that any of us would choose for ourselves? And yet that very story has been encouraging to me through my life when things are really, really tough, and you think, well... But all the, all the people in the Bible that God used went through really tough times first. Moses was shepherding sheep there, uh, away from his home and everybody he knew for 40 years before he got started in his ministry, if you will. You know, uh, an example that came to my mind when I was studying this lesson was the man who was born blind. So his disciples say, who sinned that this man is born blind? Him or his parents? And he said, neither. <laughs> this happens so that this is in John 9, 1 to 7. This happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night's coming when no one can work. I'm in the world. I'm the light of the world. And so then he gives light to this man as an example. I can give light to this man. I can recreate his eyes. I can recreate the part of his brain that sees because he's born. If he's been blind since birth, part of his brain is missing. The part that would, you know, be used for sight will go away. It's like a sculpture. Uh, you, your mind starts with a big block of granite. And as you get older, the things you use are there, left there, the things you don't use are gotten rid of. Well, that part of his brain would not be there. And so Jesus, in recreating his vision, would have, it, it was like a miniature creation, if you will. He took, I've wondered why in this particular instance he used the communication form example of uh, this, where he, he takes this guy's eye, instead of saying, be healed, like he might say to other people. He reaches down, gets some mud, spits in the mud, rubs it on his eyes, and tells him to wash it off in the pool of Siloam. Well, you know, I've often thought, what the heck? <laughs> Why would he do that? To, but I thought, you know, it's a little miniature creation. What did God do when he created us? He took dust, apparently mixed it with some DNA, some way or another, because we're in the form of God, and 
man became a living being in the, in the form of God. And in this man born blind to whom he gave light and sight, he did it through a little miniature creation. He recreated his brain, recreated his eyes, his ability to see. Uh, and he did it on Sabbath, which is another interesting thing. There's a whole different thing of well, the community. Look at the various uh, parables, uh, I mean, uh, miracles that, God, that Jesus did on Sabbath and begin to think, is this an, an, a communication form of what the Sabbath is meant to be to you? Is the Sabbath, the Sabbath is a, in this instance meant to create sight, to recreate you, your ability to see, your ability to understand? Is that one of the purposes for Sabbath? In John, Jesus says, you don't understand the meaning of my miracles. And so we need to be looking for not just the miracle itself, but the meaning behind the miracle. Why, why did he pick that particular instance and do it in that particular way? There's a meaning for those for us. Um, I, I guess a big, a big communication form would be um, punishment or discipline. Yeah. As far as examples, would types and anti-types be good examples? So like um, Abraham and Isaac would be one type and anti-type, how God had a... And his son had to be the sacrifice, and then that pointed forward to the cross. You know that whole that whole story with the ram caught in the thicket. Are those good examples? I think so. And he was talking about the example of Abraham and Isaac. On the way up, Isaac noticed we have we have uh, fire, we ha- we have uh, wood here, and so on. But where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, not willing to say you're it, he said, "Well, the Lord will provide a sacrifice." So he trusted God would provide, only, and we think that he might have even thought, if I kill Isaac, God is still able to resurrect him, and so I'm going to go forward with it, even though I don't quite, you know, I, I, he's the one through whom, you know, the promise is given, should have a bunch of kids, and so on. I don't get it, but in any event, it came to the point where, uh, at the last minute, he was not sacrifice and God did provide a ram caught in the thicket to use for a sacrifice but it's all a symbol I mean it's an example of salvation in uh, in human terms and it was, there's a lot more to that it's you know Abraham was needing to know more about God and boy did he learn a lot in that example yeah yes <laughs> I'm still thinking through what you were saying earlier, so I'm kind of slipping back here a moment, That's all right. which was people in the Bible where you're talking about Joseph and would you have expected him to be prime minister and uh, Moses you know, a murderer 40 years in the wilderness and yet God chooses him to lead his people uh, I, mean, I was just sitting here thinking of so many people in the Bible this applies to, you know, Paul, uh, look at his background. Uh, even John the Baptist, how he was raised, Christ himself, not schooled in the school of the prophets, a humble carpenter. And it's, it's so, I, I just thinking about how God's training is so different than human training. Because human training, we think, okay, you've got to get the right education. You know, we as parents, we want to give our children all the right things, everything to empower them for life and all of this. And, and 
who the great leaders even in this world of our day, if you want to say, if you start looking where some of them came from uh, that have been godly men and women in leadership and that God just works so differently than the human mind does and I guess sorting it through here, I'm all coming through really. It's about training us to be vessels. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not about having the right degree or the right talent or the right this or the right this. It's are we usable for what God would like to do with us. Mm-hmm. And I think the Bible says to praise God at all times. Not just the good times, but the bad times. And those are times we have a hard time seeing any good in that. But I'll tell you, in my life, not only in these all these examples, excellent examples, but in my life too, I have learned more through the tough times than the good times. What can I say? You know, if we had all had the life we thought we should live, little picket fence, everybody happy and the perfect number of kids and a wonderful spouse and the whole thing, if we had that, would we ever get down on our knees and really search our inner being and communicate with God, we'll be happy like floating along the raft trip of life, you know. And when you get stopped, when you get uh, jolted, chain jerked, the negative things uh, that you view as negative are actually the most beneficial things to you. And we should be grateful for them, even though they're tough to be grateful for. The bad times taught us so much more than the good times did. And it may explain why there's so many bad times in life, (laughs) you know, that God uses that as a tool to sculpt us. Moses, that sheep herding wasn't just time out. He actually learned what he needed to learn to, to be in charge of the Israelites through dealing with all these unruly sheep. You know, it, it created, not only was the training in Egypt good because it trained him to be, he was actually being geared to be Pharaoh. And so not only did he learn all the military stuff and all the ruling stuff and all that, but then he had to be put over here and learn how you deal with sheep. Because you're going to be dealing with a million plus sheep here shortly. And you need to know how to do that. So the time out times are some of the best times in, in life. I know just one story. This, um, this doctor I knew, he, he was ophthalmologist. He was actually sort of fired from his first job, uh, and he was posted out in some ten buck two place where he hated it. <laughs> it was so rural and so remote that he didn't have the right equipment or anything. He had to learn to figure out what glasses prescriptions were by, you know, just looking at them and getting a gist of what the glasses prescription was. Hmm? Doctors. Yeah, doctors, yes. The official term. So... Years and years later, he, this is hate, hate experience, terrible experience. Years later, he gets into a prestigious Scottish medical school. Medical school. Uh, very few people got in, something like 30. He was the only graduate of his class from that school. Why? Because the final exam was they handed him a glasses and asked what the prescription was. And he was able to do it. And they said, no one, no one else was able to do it. And they said, how, how were you able to do it? He said, well, you know, I had to do it back in the day, you know. His worst experience in life actually prepped him for what he needed to know and succeed in later. 
You never know what the bad things are doing as far as you're stair-stepping towards what God has in mind for your character and your influence on other people. We're, we're running close on time. Let me just um, mention a few other things. I was going to do punishment and discipline. I think we see a lot of that in the Old Testament particularly. Um, okay, you don't like me leading you, God says. I'll let other countries lead you and see how you like that. And you'll be able to tell the difference between how I lead and how they lead. Uh, Punishment and discipline. And one person's punishment is another person's discipline. You know, they say one one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. A A lot of our relationship with God is how we look at him and what he allows to happen to us. The very same thing that can cause a person to draw closer to Christ can cause them to go away, depending on their attitude of why God is allowing this. Is he allowing something negative to injure you, destroy you, kill you, whatever? Or is he trying to use this for your own benefit, for your own growth? And how you look at what comes to you can often depend on your relationship, how your relationship with God goes. Do you reject him entirely? Do you love him with all your heart and trust him more than anybody, even your own self? to do a better job with you and your life and your future than you would. You know, you, you, we have to come to that conclusion. We are very untrustworthy. We don't see things clearly. We see things the way we want to see them, as Russell was saying. We view the Bible sometimes the way we want to, not the way it really is. Um, we have other examples. They'll be in the notes um, online at coming in the near future. I have examples of allegory, which is a figure of speech in which abstract ideas and principles are described in terms of characters, figures, and events. And for that, I put um, the parable of the sower. Here's a sower doing this, that, and the other thing, and it's an allegory meant to describe the way different people take in the good news, the gospel. Um, I won't go into detail, but let me just hit these highlights. Metaphor is another thing he uses, which is a figure of speech, which makes an implicit, implied, or hidden comparison, not an explicit one, between two things or objects that are poles apart from each other, but have some characteristics in common. And for that, I thought of uh, Matthew 21, 42 to 45, um, which Jesus mentions, have you... um, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He talks about, the we are told, you know, the cornerstone, and we're building blocks. We're not real stones. It's not a real building. It's us being built into a, a, the, the temple of the Holy Ghost. But you can look in here. We have examples of simile, a visual display of cognitive dissonance. We talked about that a lot in this class, questioning um, and so on. There's a lot more in the lesson, but I think we're, we've come down to the end. I do appreciate your um, participation, and uh, let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for trying everything in you have to communicate with us clearly, to get through to our our hard heads and our hard hearts and the way we were brought up and the bad things we've been through. It's amazing that you can get through to us at all and change our opinions on anything. We pray most sincerely that your Holy Spirit will fill each of our hearts. Give us clarity. Clear away the dirt, the dust, 
the junk that's in our lives. Give us a pure and deep understanding and love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.